0: a podcast from 2MBS Fine
1: Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. David Greco has sung on some of the finest stages across Europe and makes regular appearances with Australia's finest orchestras including the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, the Australian Chamber Orchestra, as well as the Sydney Symphony. Internationally regarded for his interpretations of Schubert lieder and the solo works of J.S. Bach, this Aria Award nominated artist is also the first Australian ever to have been appointed to a position with the Sistine Chapel Choir in the Vatican. In June, he joins the Australian Haydn Ensemble for Die stille Nacht and I'm delighted he's taken time out to come and be in conversation with me today. David Greco, welcome to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, it's go, go, go for you, because as we're talking now, you've just come back from singing with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, is that
2: right? I have, yes. Britain War Requiem. It's a, a thrilling, terrifying, devastating, exciting work. It's a, it's an honour to do it. And it's not done as as much as it probably should be, but it's, should we say, prescient at the, at the current time, especially with yes. current events. But... Uh, Yeah,
1: But it must be a bit of a shock um, from performing with just a piano sometimes to having to have the full might of a symphony orchestra. Yeah, I love that actually.
2: I love to be able to kind of test or one of my singing teachers used to call pushing the envelope. So I love to, you know have extremes of what I'm asked to do. You know, the, the intimacy of working with a piano is, is gorgeous. Can you, you can do these subtle things. You can change these colours. And yet when you're with a massive band like the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra with umpteen choirs and three organs on stage and etc. etc. et, cetera, et cetera, <laughs> it's a different mode of production. I, I enjoy that, you know, testing your technique. There's nothing strange like straining your voice or anything. In a work like the Britain War Requiem, because the forces behind you are literally so massive, mm. And I'm making literally so much noise. Mm. The temptation is to just match them, but unfortunately, I've just got two little bits of fat in my throat. <laughs> and you know, uh, you know what happens if you strain your wrist yes. or, or, or a tendon. I mean, the, you, you, there's no coming back from that, or at least not not after a significant period of rest. So you, that's part of the craft is is just knowing how much to give, for how long. Mm and uh, judging it.
1: Mm. <laughs> well, you'll be performing with the Australian Haydn on Stornburg. Die stille Nacht is the name of the programme, which yeah. I think sounds like it, it might be a bit wintry. Is that is that
2: right? Well, yeah, it means uh, the, the quiet night, kind of inspired by themes of nocturnal happenings. Ah. But also um, the the idea in kind of German uh, Baroque uh, literature and poetry of die stille Nacht is also a time of... Holiness and of contemplation. Mm. So, you think it's yeah, yeah, indeed, Heiligenacht, yes. exactly. So, there's, um, we've got a, a bit of opera, but also a bit of, um, sacred music. So, it applies to both, you know. Mm. Have
1: you sung with the Australian Haydn Ensemble before?
2: Quite a few times, actually. I'm very lucky. And actually, my brother Matthew, um, plays is a regular fixture. Of course, of, he is, of, yes. Of, yeah.
1: no, it's not a coincidence with the surname, then. <laughs> no, no, no.
2: <laughs> uh, no, no. We've, we've, we perform together quite often with Pinchcut, often, yeah. um, and, and Brandenburg or we performed together, him in the band and me singing. But um, for some reason, it's always confused me why ensembles and orchestras haven't made more of a thing of it because we think it's quite interesting. <laughs>
1: indeed. Well, I think we have to have a selection of music to get things moving properly. And you've got some Scarlatti to
2: kick us off. Yes, a a singer, work, a, oh, in yeah, indeed. A singer giving some piano music or yeah. giving something that's not vocal. Oh, Scarlatti. um, Okay, a couple of things about this piece. Scarlatti is heritage-wise from the area that my family are from, the south of Italy. Ah. So to me, Scarlatti, I, I don't think conjures up ideas about kind of southern Italian music, but for me, it's utterly Neapolitan. And being Neapolitan, it's rich with melody. And I find this just an intensely vocal piece.
1: Sonata in a major from Domenico Scarlatti, Alexandra Tauroux, the pianist, the first choice of my guest in conversation today, the baritone David Greco. It's actually remarkably melodic and you're right, it does sound like uh, one could almost sing it. It's got that lovely, yeah. lovely uh, sort of upper line.
2: I, th- I think of the way it's played as well by um, Tauroux, it's it. he's quite big on the scene at the moment and I saw him at Wigmore Hall about mm. a decade ago and that's really when I first his art became known to me. And I was immediately struck, not by his virtuosity, I mean, by all intents and purposes, in terms of the pianists around on the classical scene today, he's not really a virtuoso virtuoso. He's not, Mm. shall we say, he's not a note getter. But his power, for me, his his great um, talent was one of utter lyricism in the hand and a legato, which is something that as a singer we strive for all the time. And I just think he plays like a singer. Amazing.
1: Mm. It was a piano piece, uh, your first Mm. uh, work there. Did you play the piano at all? Yes,
2: my first instrument, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Again, unusual for a singer. Well, I mean, (laughs) it shouldn't be, but I'm a teacher at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music for my sins, uh, or casual teacher. So um, I get to ask a lot of my students about, you know, their musical backgrounds and certainly how they learn their pieces. And you'd be surprised how few singers have a first instrument or really? have anything else other than. And, I mean, I, I was not a very good piano student. I mean, I was pretty lazy, to be honest. Um, but my mother was a pianist. Just and sort of half hour of practice before you listen. Yeah, to absolutely. Kind of like, you know. I think I drove my, my teachers insane. Mm. But am I grateful for it? Oh my lord! I can play pretty much all of my accompaniments, all of them.
1: Really? Yep. So you yep. can sit down at the piano and just yep. play Absolutely. a one man show. I, I'm,
2: I would say I'm a prodigious sight reader with no technique, <laughs> but I have no technique. Oh, so the right so the right notes come out. Yeah, that's you exactly right. And I can I can uh, fluff the harmonies. So you know, I, <laughs> I, I, the, part of the great joy of my of teaching as well is that I'm able to accompany my students, and hence. Their music, right? So I like
1: that. Okay, well, that's good. Yep.
2: So, tell me about
1: life growing up. What was it like for you?
2: Um, so, it's pretty Apart musical. From not practicing the piano. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why. Well, my mother was was a fabulous pianist and a, a really an all round muse. I when mean, she played pretty much everything under the sun, and she taught flute, record a guitar, singing, and piano, and she was a piano student at the conservatory of music. Mm. So, there was definitely a music on that's from her and from my grandmother, who was a, a fabulous pianist. That's the Irish side of my family and the italian side of my family i can't really like claim that that a lot of the music came from them however my great uncle did we know about him because we have his mandolin who passed away many many decades ago won an incredible mandolin competition in milan before he emigrated to australia we found out recently so there's music both sides i guess fantastic uh so when did the
1: piano transition into the singing
2: Look, it's a little bit embarrassing I, mean, I for a singer to admit that they're inspired by the works of Andrew Lloyd Webber, isn't it? Maybe. I don't it's know. It's not embarrassing at well, all. Thank and you, you wouldn't Simon. be the <laughs> um, So, you know, as a, as a school student, the fan of the opera just represented the height of drama. Ah, uh, and... you're the writer. at ah, your age. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. So that was really exciting just to hear that the combination of singing and speech and drama together like this medium. Yeah. Because opera was not known to me really yet couple of the tunes I guess and then luckily the school that I was at had had a pretty fantastic music system and a really it was an all boys school and we had these massive boys' choirs, and I was in the junior school boy choir of of, of which there must have been at least a hundred boys. Mm. An incredible teacher. um is this pre or post voice breaking? Uh, right this era? is actually just pre to be okay. honest, but I was never recognized to have any particular vocal tone you were just I think, one of, uh, yeah, I think just dozens me, yeah. yeah, he just mm. put me as an alto, you know in in, in the cattle mm. crew as it were, and um to make up the numbers. yeah, but we did the works of Pirates in Penzance. so oh. I was in Oliver as a workhouse boy oh. and this teacher was so so amazing. Brother. Connell was his his name I can't remember his first name um but he was so supportive of us I think that he crowbarred in a part to the parts of Penzance for a 70-piece boy choir, right. of which there is no part. No. But I think we represented the the Major General's mm. children, 70 children. It was a bit weird, actually, in retrospect, but it was fun. <laughs> so obviously there were lots of opportunities for yeah, yeah. what, what other musicals were you? Did you ever get any of the leads? No, 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 no not at all. No, I wasn't recognised to have any vocal talent. And then my voice broke and I was just... I think I, I discovered opera by then. Right. Um, old LPs from my parents and I was hooked. I mean, I got hooked. And probably the next choice of music is going to explain how I got hooked. But um, I discovered this wonderful aria, but I wasn't learning singing. So I took the aria, shall we say, the sheet music into my piano teacher, who was my poor, suffering piano teacher. And I said, I'd really like to learn this piece on the piano. And she said, but you realise it's a vocal it's an aria, it's a song. I said, I know, but it's very pretty, and I would like to play it. I think I was hoping that she'd ask me to sing it, but that didn't happen.
1: (laughs) Well, so if that's this piece of music we're going to hear now, tell us what it is, and uh, particularly tell us who's
2: singing it. Yeah, Okay. so this is Maria Callas, and uh, this is a live recording of one of her seminal roles, Violetta in La Traviata. But this comes from a 1955 live performance uh, from La Scala, and it's maybe not the most obvious choice because uh, uh, you'd pick probably Violetta's big arias uh, you know to show but this represents the duet between her and her father-in-law basically at a moment where he asks her to give up his son and she the first words out of her mouth are "morro," i will die if 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 i live him and by the end of the duet i think what is astonishing about Marie Callas is that she has a whole artillery of Expression that she's able to use, and there are times at which she's not really singing, even she's crying, she's speaking, she's yelling, it's just an incredible facility.
3: Sarà del vostro amore, is that the most important thing
1: The soprano there for a little part of Verdi's La Traviata. The baritone we heard was Ettore Bastianini. The choice of my guest in conversation today, fellow baritone, David Greco. David is performing in June with the Australian Haydn Ensemble. Get along to australianhaydn.com.au for more information and for tickets. So, David, tell me, was it actually that performance that was on that record? There? No, it
2: wasn't actually. It was something completely different by Maria Callas, but I, when you very excitingly asked me to put some pieces together for the show, I simply had to represent something from her recording legacy that really highlighted her genius. I mean, she was a genius. Yeah, There's absolutely. no doubt about it. She was an absolute genius.
1: Well, you you sung a couple of roles with Opera Australian. In fact, you were a full time member of the chorus some time ago in two thousand and seven. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that experience.
2: You know, I think sometimes being in the chorus. I mean, who was it said was a glorious once, and I was never in the chorus, or someone. But I mean, I think there's that there's that kind of slight prejudice about you know, well, you're a chorus singer, you're not a solo singer. And I think when when I was offered a position in the chorus, I mean, I was a young singer. I mean, it was a great responsibility and a great honor. Hmm. And I remember at the time, people saying, are you sure this is what you want to do? Are you sure that's where you want your career to go? And I was like, well, no, probably not. But it's a great opportunity right now. And and I'm going to do it. And thank goodness I did. Because Simon, in that, I mean, I was just under a year that I was Part of the full-time chorus, I learn about stagecraft. I learn a, how to put on a wig. I learned how to apply my own makeup. I learned how to follow a conductor. I work with Richard Bonning in the pit. Mm. Things like that. Richard Hickox. I did the operas of Billy Budd, Arabella. I mean, this is stuff that I. I think all the repertoire. Just absolutely fantastic. Mm. Thirty performances of Carmen. Thirty performances of Love O M. <laughs> great. Mm, it was great fun.
1: So how did how did you how did you land that? Like, it was that sort of your first job out of. College, as it were?
2: No, I'd been freelancing for about four years after finishing at the Conservatory of Music. I didn't do the opera course there. I finished after my bachelor. And I was lucky enough to be immediately given uh, principal positions with orchestras like the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Paul Dyer was very good to me. Mm. He gave me really my first professional um, opportunities, you might say. And actually, funnily enough, Paul Dyer has recently just asked two of my students to sing for him. Really? And so it's going to be their first professional. Well, it's
1: nice that that tradition continues. Yes, a very lovely
2: circle, actually. Mm.
1: Yeah.
2: It's interesting that you talk about, you
1: know, you didn't do the opera course, but you end up as a, a, a in the opera chorus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mm-hmm. talked before about technique, or you were mentioning techniques, you know, singing with the orchestra, singing with the yeah, piano and yeah, so yeah, yeah, on. Yeah. Singing opera is something different. So what is the difference between singing, you know, a bit of leader and being in an opera chorus? There is course?
2: no difference. There is absolutely no difference. Right. The only difference is in terms of you know, the volume that you're going to make with an orchestra is just naturally going to have to be more. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have to have the technique to be able to get over an orchestra and to sustain that for longer. Do I sing differently singing the Britain war record with Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, which is nearly 350 musicians behind me? Do I sing differently with that compared to standing at a forte piano with Aaron Hilliard playing Vintarizer, absolutely not.
1: Well, I'm talking about more about the the opera course, though. In terms, of, oh right, like you, you said, you didn't do the opera, opera course. Yeah,
2: yeah, yes, yes.
1: What what was that going to teach you that you obviously well, didn't I, need well, because you went well to indeed,
2: in the opera actually, well uh, for sure. I mean, opera course is supposed to prepare you for the opera stage, isn't it? Yes. Um, and I think a good opera course does prepare the student for the for the opera stage. I, I didn't have any of that training, but to be honest, I fared pretty
1: well. Yeah, and <laughs> not, not, not so bad, dare I suggest. Going back to that sort of Maria Callas thing, though, mm. you, you, you took that aria or whatever it was into your piano teacher. Yeah. And said, I want to learn how to play this. So you were wanting to follow the classical repertoire yeah. back then. You weren't wanting to go off and be in the next Andrew
2: Lloyd Webber show, for instance. No, that's right. I think I got the bug. I think Maria Callas was responsible somehow. <laughs> it's her fault. You know, it's her fault. And it is a bug. I mean, a lot of people talk about these, you know, these seminal musicians these great singers. Mm. And they get hooked. So there's something intrinsic about their art, about their communication, which gives you the bug. And she gave me the bug for sure. Mm.
1: So what about going to Gleinborn? Because you you get mm. you get everywhere really.
2: I did. I I've lived in four different countries. Um, and I've worked in four different countries, and I'm very grateful for that. Pre-pandemic, which was I think a different experience as well. Um, then ne- I was in the Netherlands for about five years. Mm. And that's really where I solidified my craft of singing Oratorio and Bach, really, because mm. the Dutch are more obsessed with Bach than the Germans. It's, really? It's a, it's a phenomenon over there. And Do you think, you mentioned pre-pandemic, you don't think that things are completely
1: back to as they were? Or do you it, think it's just different yeah, now?
2: Yeah, it's a conversation that I have with a lot of um, colleagues, actually. Uh, certainly things have recovered in, in many instances, and in a lot of instances they also haven't. But it's not so much... that things are back to how they were. Things have changed. Right. Yeah. They're just different now. They're just different. Um, Opportunities are different. Companies are less willing to trust certain artists based on where they live, based on their repertoire choices. Um, It's just become a little bit more specific. Mm. I think the whole traveling thing is a bit, is much more difficult now because some flights are just more expensive. I used to, I used to come and go between Europe sometimes three times a year. My carbon footprint is dreadful. But that was when flights were doable and I sustained really an international career, you might say, mm. because I could afford to come and go. I couldn't do that anymore. So
1: you're not going over to Europe?
2: No, 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 no. I, I, I recently went for the first time in three years, which is my longest stint away from Europe in more than 20 years. Mm. Mm. And were you still able to get work over there? I, I still have connection with some groups over there yeah. and I, did, I was able to do some nice concerts, but... um. It just seems that the, the, the and the marketing has changed as well, but that's really a Pandora's box.
4: Yeah.
1: There are some of those substantial names that you've worked with in Europe. Um, did you have any apprehensions at all when you were going there for the first time, or did you just arrive and say, hello,
2: I'm here? I went, I, I arrived and said, hello, I'm here. Right. And I was lucky enough to be um, put in the way of some very influential and interesting people who uh, didn't think I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> did you put
1: yourself in the way or were other people putting you in the way? as it
2: were. I'm a self-made man, I think you'd say. <laughs> Look, um, I did it all by myself. I, I, well, no, I mean to be honest, I never won any competitions. Yeah. I never you didn't won. Didn't do that circuit. No. I, well I was never successful. <laughs> um I never won any major grants. So in a way, I did it all myself. Everything every every opportunity I got I auditioned for mm. or I did either well the time before and people invited me back. So,
1: yeah. I mean, you're very easygoing um, from the way you're talking now. It sounds so
2: easy. It surely wasn't. No, it's not easy at all, especially not easy being freelance. I mean, most opera singers, especially Australians that go overseas, they they, they fall into this system that is very prevalent, especially in Germany called the fest system, which is the festival season, and they are basically owned by an opera house. Now, with that comes pluses and minuses. The major plus about that is security. Mm, You've got a job. Yeah, and a family. I mean, so many Australians have gone over to have a job in Germany in one of these houses, and they're married, they've got children, and they've got a job that they'll have for a very long time. The downside of that is, well, unlike me, that they can't travel They can't go and do a variety of things. My my repertoire is huge. Mm. But I think it's not because I chose it to be so. I think it's because that's... I've just been so mobile, mm. you know. And that's what
1: you've picked up as you've been going from all these Absolutely. My repertoire
2: s- stems from the Middle Ages up to Britain. Mm. So, you know.
1: <laughs> I mean, yes, you said you did Carmen and La Traviata 30 times. You weren't mm. looking for a 31st time.
2: No, not particularly, though I did do that at Glyndebourne, actually. Right. <laughs> <But with laughs> and this... I swore that was the last. and so It has, in fact, been the last.
1: Right. Hour. But is that part of the reason why you departed the Chorus of Opera Australia?
2: Um, no, I departed the course of Up Australia after about nine months. I'm um, very grateful for my time there. Very, very grateful. And having met wonderful people and worked with wonderful people because I wanted to go and do more study. Right.
4: Mm. So what
1: was that study? Tell me about
2: that. Um, I, I was going to become a countertenor. Um, so that's a whole different thing. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. I have a very easy falsetto, which um, I've used to great comic effect. For- ah, right. <laughs> For many of my colleagues, and it's my party trick. But um, at one stage in my life, I thought I might want to pursue that. And I also had always had a penchant for early music, for Baroque. Because it is a very rare voice type, isn't it? Well, it's
3: well, getting
2: rarer now, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, the Mirosol, you could, you you, you you, step over countertenors in the gutter now. I mean, they're everywhere. Oh, really? Used to be Sopranos, you'd say that off. Oh, it's not very nice <laughs> to say it, is it? But no, they, they're absolutely everywhere. I don't know. I might have been more wealthy if I'd uh, become a countertenor. I don't know.
1: You just, But you, then you just decided it wasn't for you.
2: No, it's a good story. Do you want to know it? Yeah, absolutely. So I went over to the preeminent place in the world to study early music, which is The Hague in the Netherlands, and I was right, that's it. I'm going to become a countertenor and live happily ever after in Europe. And I auditioned at the Royal Conservatoire in The Hague, in the Hague um, just fresh out of Opera Australia Chorus, and Michael Chance, the amazingly famous, fabulous... Um, English countertenor, was on the panel because he taught there. And um, he said, I presented my two countertenor pieces for him, and he just looked at me with a, fu- a kind of a funny, bemused look on his face. And by the end, I got to the end of it. He said, but you're a bass, aren't you? You're a baritone. I said, well, <clears throat> actually, I am. He said, well, uh, sing Machedich sing from us, from the Matthew Passion. Sing that, just 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 now, just a cappella. So I sang it in my baritone. He said, we'll take you as a baritone.
1: And that was that So it's actually his fault. That was your counter tenor. Yeah. are gone.
2: Yeah, gone. <laughs> he then became my quite fabulous teacher, so I'm I'm grateful, but <laughs> Awesome.
1: Some more music now. What's this next one?
2: Love me or leave me or let me be lonely. Um this is Nina Simone, the fabulous Nina Simone. Um Nina Simone is an inspiration to me because I find her a great musician, first and foremost. Mm. I love the smokiness of her voice, I love her. Something that gets my rocks off is my use of text, is text. That inspires me. I'm always going to the words to find inspiration for um, whatever it is that I'm singing. I go straight to the text and Nina Simone is um, another genius of, of, of text and lyricism. Also, coupled with the fact that she was, I mean, the tragic story that she was just this incredible classical pianist, but because of the civil rights movement in America and and the times she was banned from going to the Curtis Institute, I think it was, so... That was a bit disappointing. But in this song, particular song, she bursts into a kind of a quasi-Bark fugue in uh, improvisation in the middle of the song and you hear her prowess on the keyboard. It's amazing.
0: Love me and leave me and let me be lonely You won't believe me but I love you only I'd rather be lonely than happy with somebody else you might find the night time the right time for kissing Nighttime is my time for just reminiscing Regretting instead of forgetting with somebody else There'll be no one unless that someone is you I intend to be independently blue your love don't want to borrow have it today to give back tomorrow your love is my love there's no love for nobody else Be lonely than happy with somebody else. You might find the night time the right time for kissin'. Night time is my time for just reminiscing, regretting instead of forgetting with somebody else.
1: The unique no voice of Nina Simone, Love Me or Leave Me, the choice of my guest in conversation today, Baritone David Greco. David, I, I wanted to explore a bit more about those singing techniques. I mean, a, a jazz singer like Nina Simone, you know, has to make love to the microphone, at least to a certain extent. And the classical singer, as you were saying, it, it was just two bits of um, tendon or whatever the hell it was. Yeah, yeah, you know, Gristle. It? Gristle, yes, in, in your voice. I mean, have you ever sung properly with a, with a microphone like that and, and wanted to explore more of a jazz career?
2: Uh, never. No, no, no. I have absolutely no aptitude. And I'm very happy to admit that. Interesting. I have, I have absolutely no aptitude for contemporary singing or for anything that doesn't require pure Italian vowels. <laughs> and my friend Emma Zampieri would t- be the first to say, no, please, David, no, 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 no. no. Don't try
1: you to could do set, that. You could create a whole new style, a whole new fashion, you know. That's how, yeah, these, that's how these things yeah, start. Well, yeah, but, well, J- it, it, jazz with Italian vowels.
2: It, it's, jazz with Italian I think it sounds pretty dire, actually, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but I, I love listening to it and um, I wish I had the aptitude, but I don't. Uh, well, for,
1: another, for another lifetime. <laughs> yes, maybe, yeah, maybe. perhaps.
2: Well, when I was doing the research for the interview,
1: I, I couldn't help noticing that on your website, your bio is not just in English. It is in Dutch and in German. Yeah. And as you said, you know, you've worked in those countries, particularly in, in the Netherlands. Do you speak those languages?
2: Kleinbeetje. I speak a little bit of Dutch. Right. So we say um, I I speak enough Dutch to get by, but I mean, they speak English there, so it's really not... Well, I was going to say, I mean, I know
1: they kind of, quote unquote, speak English everywhere. It is sort of the international language now, but does learning the local language in those situations help your career
2: particularly? Yes, absolutely. Because you'll always be accepted more in the country that you speak the vernacular of, Mm. you know? I mean, at the time when I was living, I was living there from 2009 to 2015. At that time in Germany, people didn't speak English or not like they do now. That's another thing that's happened just since I've been back in Australia, really since 2015. English is widely spoken throughout Germany. And I tell you, it was not readily spoken in Germany. When I worked in Germany, I was not able to communicate with people in English or rather only very basically, very basic, and they did not want to. But now there's no option. I think that's just globalization. I guess I wasn't
1: sure whether it was just the common language, like you know. Well, I, it is when I'm traveling in yeah. Europe. You always hear someone, you know, sure. people speaking English, and English is not the mother language of any of the people in. Well,
2: I'm, well, I'll tell you just my experience about living in Germany. When I was trying to get these auditions for these various agents, mm-hmm. and and going to do these auditions, and um, writing correspondence to prospective conductors to prospective ensembles and opera companies, there was no English. There was no English being spoken. And there was no pity for you if you didn't speak German. And if you did kind of break down into some quasi-English German speaking, they'd just reply in German. And if they, you didn't understand, they'd just speak louder, mm. you know. and um, It is think, what English speakers yeah, tend to do. Yeah, anyway. oh, absolutely. So fair <laughs> enough. I mean, you know. Yeah, but um fascinating. I mean, it's, it's one of my great disappointments that, I mean, I was in Germany for the least amount of time of the countries that I've lived in that I didn't pick the language up better. I sing mostly in German, mm. but I didn't pick the language it's up. It's not to quite be able the same, though, to, no, 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 unfortunately.
1: Not. I'd like to know more about one of the names that uh, you worked with, Tom Copeman, for instance. Yeah. Uh, tell me about working with him because it must mm. have been quite the experience.
2: It was. Um, Ton was also um, a professor of harpsichord and organ at the Royal Conservatory in The Hague, so I, w- I would often see him around. But I did actually audition for him, and I was a member of the his um, Amsterdam Brock uh, ensemble for about three years. I mean, we did wonderful things. I mean, we sang in Monteverdi's Vespers in Monteverdi's Church. We did this crazy tour of the St. John Passion. I'll never forget it. We did about 18 performances of Bach's St. John Passion in each major city in Europe in 20 days. Good, we'll just think about that for a second. So we'd travel on the day of a concert mm. and leave and travel the next day and sing. And I think we we're lucky if we had a day off. They're all a bit closer together, though, aren't they? I know they are, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. But, it's you know, you still have to, you know, check out of the hotel, get on a bus, get Back to an airport, brush, you know, yes, all that yes, stuff. Yes. And it's easy you know, that stand up on stage and sing like an angel, you know.
1: Yes, it's Wednesday, so it must be Bremen kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's
2: exactly right. Um, Tom was great to work with. He He's a very, like all, oh, you know, Eminent conductors and music directors. He's very specific about what it is that he wants, which is great. He has very high standards and he has got very short patience for mediocrity and for musicians that aren't able to give him what he wants. And actually, I like that. I like directors and conductors that have a very clear idea of what they want and they'll expect it and demand it actually. I, I work well in those situations.
1: Are there different styles of working in Europe compared to here, or are, or are we now kind of working
2: off the same no, template? No, no, now? no, 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 Very different. Very, very different. I think a lot of it comes down to the language and and the communication of those various languages and just the various cultures, like the Dutch. um, The Dutch rehearse differently to the Americans who rehearse differently to the Australians, you know. Um, Also, they have a different... So not better,
1: worse, just different?
2: No, different. Mm. Um, Yeah, some, some, for me personally, some are better, some are worse. But, uh, you know, they have very specific requirements linguistically, musically. I mean, Amsterdam Baroque has been going for many years. I mean, they put the bar cantatas on the map you know, with the recordings of the new recordings. So mm. there was a great performance tradition that, that I was part of that, you know, I had to key into pretty quickly.
4: Mm. Mm. Our
1: next piece of music now, David, what's this one?
2: Well, this is following on from that countertenor conversation. <laughs> <laughs> this piece actually comes from a BBC show called Men Who Sing High that was on the, the radio when I was a teenager and I'll never forget it. It was called Men Who Sing High. I thought, I'll listen to this. Once upon a time when you used to have... When certain classical music stations would present musical education programs as well. Oh. Certain national broadcasters. Uh, sadly, no longer. But this piece came on and I thought, oh, these are either two boys singing here or two countertenors. And they're neither. They're both men who have gone through, shall we say, s- sexual maturity. So all have families and all that. And have his voices have broken, shall we say. But they're listed on the CD as sopranists, so sopranists, so not as countryers. and you'll hear the range that they have in this extraordinarily beautiful but unknown motet um, by a, a Venetian composer, um, Renaissance composer called uh, Giacomo Finetti. This is scored for two high male sopranos singing um, kind of a love song to Mary.
1: Maria che rapis corda hominum, or O Mary Who Steals the Hearts of Men by Giacomo Finetti. It's very, it's very
2: poetic, isn't it? It is. It's beautiful. It's For very a nice. sacred piece.
1: Well, I think there's a lot of poetry in those sacred pieces, Indeed,
2: it? but it's kind of, um, you, you know, is that the, You're is saying that,
1: it's taking it to another
2: level. No, yeah, yeah, there's that beautiful thing about kind of um Renaissance poetry or 17th, to 18th century Italian poetry that deals with the divine, that deals with the sacred, mm. that also has elements of romanticism and even eroticism in it. Yeah. You know, such as the inspiration from the deities or, or the Virgin Mary or the angels on high that it produces these overwhelming feelings in men, in men and women. So it's this, you know... It's, it's 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 very poetic it's beautiful well continuing the subject of the divine i do
1: need to <laughs> ask about the sistine chapel choir which i mentioned ha. in the intro and you made a very strange face when i was reading it out good story it's a good story <laughs> <We'll> tell it <laughs>
2: um so because i've never i don't have patriality in any particular country in europe i was essentially visa hopping for years so I'm, i was a student in the netherlands i that was my visa there, and I was a self-employed. In the UK, I was a self-employed, um, I had a kind of artist visa. They all ran out, and I had to come back to Australia to work with the Australian Hardened Ensemble, funnily enough, yeah. in 2014. And I was like, I'm not quite finished with Europe. How do I get back there? Uh, oh, I can't keep applying for visas. I thought, well, I'm half Italian heritage. There's got to be something in that. So I researched and researched and researched and I thought I found this little loophole that those that are descendant from two um, generations back, so a.k.a. my grandparents who mm. came here, you can go back to Italy and if you work for three years in Italy, you will regain your citizenship. So I thought, oh. yes, bonza. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? Well, m- my background was singing, not just in the chorus, but in, you know, the St. Mary's Cathedral Choir here in Sydney and also Westminster Abbey Cathedral Choir in London and so I had choral training. And so I thought, mm, well, why don't I just write to the Vatican? I mean, they might need someone in the system. I think it was as a bet with my friend, actually. I think it had what It was a bet, actually. And I just thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. So I wrote to him, nothing for three weeks. And all of a sudden, this email came back. Maestro, I think his name was Paolo Mbello, will hear you on such and such a date. What? I said, Okay, I actually have to be in Europe then to sing, you know, for, for Matthew Passion season in the Netherlands. So instead of flying to Amsterdam, I'll just fly into Rome. I'll do the audition and go to Amsterdam. I thought, I've got the job. and Because I'll, and I'll, and, I can speak low-grade low Italian, but enough, shall we say. And so I was able to communicate with him and that was all. He got me to sign... I got you know a signed contract with the Pope's signature on it, or shall we say, stamp? The, yeah. You know the his, the stamp, obviously the <laughs> stamp. Yeah, indeed. And um, and that that was how it was going to be. And I was going to be a member of the Sistine Chapel Choir for three years and get my Italian citizenship. I lasted about a month.
1: Oh, that wasn't on the bio. No, that it was only no. Month? I leave that off.
2: I'm happy to admit that on air, actually. But it was a great experience. So what happened? I was certainly the I think if not the first. English-speaking person, which I think I possibly might have. I was certainly the first Australian. Yeah. Um, but what happened? What, what, why? It did, just what, shall uh, we say, without without incriminating either myself uh, or the or the, the um good Sistine, <laughs> Ch- the good Sistine Chapel <laughs> choir in Rome, it was not a good fit.
1: <laughs> not a good cultural fit. Yes, it
2: wasn't a good cultural fit or musical fit. No. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay, that's a mm. bit more um, scientific. Yeah. You didn't enjoy. it.
2: Look, no, I did. I was a. I mean, an extraordinary experience. I was saying the beatification of John Paul II and Mary Teresa. Mary Teresa. Um, that was a big month then. It was a big month. So, well, they were, they were. They had their thing. Thing on the same. Yeah. Beat, not beatification. Is it
1: beatification? Well, what, what wasn't one of them beatified? One of them something else. Yes, that's right. Whatever the difference. different, so, that, different that, stages. On the same day, and yeah, that was yeah.
2: my first week. So that was fun. But, yeah, it just was, it wasn't It was a great fit for, for all intents and purposes. But, you know, it was good. It was a wonderful experience, absolutely wonderful experience. And um, then So you I, never got that Italian visa then? No, I certainly didn't. Then I went to live in Germany. <laughs> <That's>
1: disappointing. <gasps> Historically informed performance is quite the buzzword or perhaps I should say buzz phrase. Yes. And that's certainly one of the modus operandi of the uh, Australian Heiden Ensemble. Yeah, and of course, uh, and this is kind of a, a, a lengthy lead into our next piece of music, which is finally a track oh, of you yourself yes. singing, with Erin Hilliard at the keyboard. I don't want to say keyboard rather than the piano, because I'm right. sure we'll hear about hear about that. We hear a lot about historically informed performance when it comes to instruments, whether it's the way the instrument's made, the way the instrument's played. What does that mean for a singer?
2: Mm. Okay, well, let's talk about the piano. Mm-hmm. So if you're working with a Yamaha- So skipping the singing part. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: well no, well, we'll it, 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 it gets is. back to it.
2: If you're singing with like a Yamaha or a modern piano, a Steinway or whatever, they're just really loud instruments, mm-hmm. very percussive in nature. And so you're you you are able to, to get away with less in terms of subtleties of expression, um, subtleties of color, mm. subtleties of, you, of the way in which you use words. A forte piano makes a much softer, warmer sound. has a different touch. is much more flexible, and so I'm able to use different colours with the forte piano and use different levels of volume. Uh, treat the text differently. I'm also able to use certain expressive devices like mm. portamento and sliding. It just makes them a. So what's portamento, sorry? Portamento comes from the Italian word portare, which means to carry. And if you're talking about that in terms of singing, to carry the voice means to carry the voice. It's used in, of course, in string playing as well and other mm. instruments to carry the the voice from one note to the others to slide. Now we just heard Nina some Legato, I mean, effectively. Well, no, actually, oh, okay. it's an it's an extension of legato. I mean, it's what jazz singers do brilliantly. Ooh, Ooh, yeah, 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 that type of thing. You can sing jazz. Well, yeah, (laughs) it was diabolical. Um, Please admit that. Uh, But, um, you know, portamento in the classical singing world is is very much frowned upon, though, as being kind of sloppy singing. But once upon a time, it was, you know, in terms of HIP, historically informed performance, in terms of the vocal world, you know, sliding all over the place used to be very in. Mm. So I'm trying to bring it back.
1: (laughs) Well, I think we should have a listen to uh, this. to s- Here, D- do you do any sliding there in this There is one? some
2: sliding in this, right. actually, yes. Portamento. Portamento. Portamento.
1: Yes. Which one is it?
2: This is um, Der Müller und der Bach, which is the penultimate, devastatingly beautiful, sad song from Die Schöne Müllerin, which is the first song cycle Schubert wrote for baritone and uh, keyboard, The Miller and the Brook.
3: Und wenn sich die Liebe smell their rain I am know her on him her
4: blinked
3: am Himmel I know drei on him her und halb bring Die Welt nicht wieder aus Ort. Fresh line to mine's.
1: The Müller und der Bach, the Miller and the Brook, from Schubert's Die schöne Müllerin. We heard Aaron Hellyard playing the forte piano, and the baritone was my guest in conversation today, David Greco. He's performing with the Australian Haydn Ensemble. Get along to AustralianHaydn.com.au for all the details on that. So, David, tell me more about uh, these albums that you've recorded with Erin, because there are a couple now, aren't there?
2: There are, and there's about to be another one. Ooh. Shall we say perhaps? I don't want to say the la- never say never but the last oh. we're about to record the third in the cycle of Sch- um Shivanigasan for ABC Classics later on in the year it's been a big hiatus between that and Cheryl Miller and because of covid primarily of course. um Aaron is just one of the one of my great musical collaborators I mean Aaron is my relationship with Aaron is multifaceted because he's my friend when we do leader together, he's my colleague. Mm. When he conducts me in Pinchgat, he's my boss. <laughs> and actually, he was my supervisor at Melbourne University for my PhD. Goodness. So, we've got five facets of... of uh... Our relationship, which is kind of yes, I
1: don't know, what well, the opposite of six degrees of separation. I know but it's, it's that basically. Yeah,
2: yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, You're yeah. An incredible man.
1: But another album's Bach one. I mean, you mentioned the shooting. Yeah, to indeed. The Bach. So
2: that's different yeah. again. Yes, I've got two Bach albums. Very lucky to have two Bach albums. Um, one from a most wonderful Dutch um, group called Luthers Bach Ensemble, who operate in uh, the north of Holland um, and are prolific with what they do um, in a place called Groningen. Um they're just a beautiful group, and a lot of people in the band I started with in the never in in The Hague in the Netherlands, mm. so that was it's a wonderful group. And the other Bach album I was lucky um to do uh, with ABC Classics here with Van Diemen's band, uh which I love Bach and as well.
4: Yeah. Mm.
1: you like Bach.
2: I do there's like Bach. On, there's none on the program today, though? There is no Bach. On, no, no, I chose Scarlatti instead, actually, oh, at the beginning. Enough, yeah. of, but no, there is no Bach. Well, I've just sung a lot of Bach recently, so <laughs> enough. Time to move on. <laughs> yeah. Well, you did suggest that there was kind of almost like a Bach fugue
1: in the middle of There uh, was.
2: The, Look, Nina, Simone, Nina gave Simone gave us a bit of Bach, exactly. Mm. Cudad Bach.
1: So d- you do and uh, have taught uh, lecturing at the Sydney and Melbourne Conservatoriums. Mm, yeah. What is it that you're wanting to impart That you'd think you'd like to impart onto the next generation, Uh, maybe a secret about the industry or a shortcut, even that you
2: that you wish you'd found out earlier. I just want to teach them to sing good, Um, (laughs) good. yeah, real good. Um, All of that, all of it. I want to impart my passion. I want to impart this incredible, special art form. Which is so multifaceted, which is so rich, and so multidimensional, and so historically rooted in many different cultures. Uh, I mean, it's it's the greatest joy of my life, and I'd love to be able to encourage the next generation of singers to love it as much as I do, and also to teach them to sing well. Yeah.
1: Are you seeing any differences uh, from from your era when you were going through?
2: Oh, look in the students. Yes. Yeah.
1: Is there a longer version of that answer? I don't
2: know. Look, um <laughs> look, I do I see a lot and and I I don't I don't want to be I don't want to be hard on this generation or be one of these annoying Gen X's or Gen Y's that's like, "Oh, well now kids aren't as disciplined on this." I think times have changed. I think the resources that 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 young people ha- young classical musicians have now in order to 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 learn their craft are much more easily accessed than we had. Mm. We had to go to the library and browse. I think that the, the, what saddens me is that the art of browsing is dead. Mm. So, you know, you go to Spotify, and if you're lucky, Spotify might suggest something to you. You go to YouTube. I mean, a regular thing that I have from my students, God bless them. I've got lovely, lovely students. I, you know, I love them. Um, and they, they're all very good workers, um, uh, and they're, they're passionate about what they want to do, but they don't know that my my issue is one of fascination and i think because they things are a bit easy for them now in terms of how to find repertoire how to find music how to hear singers it's mm. it's all at their fingertips to be able
1: to hear 10
2: different yeah yeah i think I, I think for... it, i think that the temptation then is just to let it all wash over you and for you to not actually really sit down and listen the art of listening also i think and patience mm. you know because I, I, mean, I was luckily exposed to the LP, just the end of the LP era. Um, or, you know, we had tapes. But you had to listen to a tape. Or you had to fast forward to the end of the tape if you really want to get to that one track, you know. And then CDs came in, of course. That was fun. But um, they were expensive CDs, you Very know. Expensive. So if you bought a CD, I remember the first, I think the first CD I bought was the Mozart Requiem. And that was you you listened to the whole thing but it was a you know good 50 minute thing
1: mm. not the sort of thing you'd put on random is it
2: no no it was a, you know you dedicated your you yeah. time to it you listen to it
1: well i'm sure that in 20 years time they'll be uh, sitting with a, an interviewer in a radio studio and talking about what that next generation for
2: sure they will be and, the, and they're uh, be complaining about me probably
1: exactly <laughs> Anyway, David Greco, it's been absolutely fabulous having you here today. But before I let you go, you do have one more piece of music to introduce. What's this last one?
2: This is a very, very special singer. And she's largely forgotten now, unfortunately. So I felt I wanted to bring her onto the show. Her name is Afia Highness. She was um, very much in the shadow of Kathleen Ferrier, the English contralto. But she's a Dutch contralto with the most extraordinary voice. A voice full of humanity, fragility, but also strength and infinite color. And there's, a, there's an Italian word called chiaroscuro, which is light and dark, and I think she's a master of it, and this is a beautiful piece. David Greco, thank you so
1: much for being in conversation with me today. Thank you, Simon. Baritone David Greco. He's singing with the Australian Haydn Ensemble for Die Stille Nacht, with concerts from June 16 through 24 at the City Recital Hall Angel Place, plus various regional venues across New South Wales. Visit australianhyten.com.au for all the details and for your tickets. And to keep up with everything else David is up to, visit davidgreco.info, and you can follow him on Instagram at davidvgreco. I'm Simon Moore, thanking you for your company on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.